How do we see? What parts of the brain are responsible for vision? And how can gene therapy restore sight to people living with a visual impairment? I'm Anna Machen, and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. In this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, I'm going behind the scenes of some of the most cutting-edge neuroscience research to explore our brains from before birth to after death. And this week, we're looking at the neuroscience of sight. And what the retina is doing is doing a lot of Photoshop operations simultaneously. And therefore, you can prevent further development of the disease and you can actually functionally rescue your, your eye. And if I then got my eyesight back, I'd be seeing these people for the first time ever. This is how we're wired. We humans are extraordinarily visual creatures. The first tissues resembling eyes are thought to have evolved over 550 million years ago, well before we were humans at all. It's easy to take our sight for granted. It's even woven into our language. Out of sight, out of mind, love at first sight or seeing eye to eye. The reality is that more than 2 million people in the UK alone live with sight loss, including me. And every day, 250 people start to lose their sight, which can have devastating effects. My name is Peter Rica. I live in a small town near Falkirk. I have this inherited condition called retinitis pigmentosa. I can never remember being able to see properly. I can never remember being able to see in the dark. And I always had a significant amount of tunnel vision, even as a young child. I can remember just walking along the playground, looking at my feet and bumping into a rough cast wall, burst all the top of my head. So I knew from from quite a young age that, you know, they, these sort of things weren't happening to other people, that, you know, there was things seriously wrong. When Peter was 12, he went to the hospital for an annual eye exam. Only they'd lost all his records, so needed to repeat some tests. In the process, the doctor noticed that he was really struggling to see in low light. They started doing even more tests. I think I was there for hours and I knew something was wrong. Told me to leave the consultation room and they asked my father to go in. And I was in the waiting room, and this is a you know, a young 12-year-old boy. Even though I was 12, I wasn't naive. I knew there's something serious, seriously wrong here. <clears throat> Sorry, I get quite emotional just talking about it. Um, so... Um, my my father was was called into the, the 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 consultation room. I was waiting for a long, long time. What seemed like a, a an incredible amount of time. It was probably about an hour. My dad came out and it, he, he was visibly upset. He took me home and he gave the bad news to my mum, um, and they basically told him that I had this condition. Up until then, we while this condition ran in the family, we didn't know what it was called. We didn't know why family members were, were losing their sight. But he said, You've, your son's got this condition called retinitis pigmentosa. It means that he'll probably, by the time he's 15, it's possible that he'll have lost his sight, he'll be blind. Eh, which came as 
a, a real hammer blow to mum and dad and obviously to, to me. One of the core symptoms of retinitis pigmentosa is night blindness. This meant that, in addition to struggling to see the blackboard and extreme tunnel vision making reading excruciatingly slow, coming home from school in the darkness of a Scottish winter was a real challenge. I was basically memorising the route when I was doing the route during the day, but that didn't stop me maybe bumping into things. If there was a bin in the street or sometimes I'd have problems finding the door in the train or... It, it was it was really, really tough. When I would go home in the in the winter, I wouldn't go out after I was home. So I wouldn't go out and play with my friends. I would stay in, in the house. As adolescence approached and I became a young adult, then I felt quite bad about it. I felt that, you know, I wasn't able to lead a normal adolescent life. I wasn't able to go out with my friends as normal. I wasn't able to do all the things that, that people did. I wasn't able to date girls the way I would have liked or meet people the way I would have liked. In retinitis pigmentosa, vision often deteriorates throughout life. And now, at 62, Peter just has a little light sensitivity left. So I'm looking out at the window at the moment and I'm seeing the sun shining off the rough cast wall. So I'm, I'm basically seeing this bright white... It's, lovely, it's actually lovely sunshine. It's beautiful sunshine. It sounds a bit overdramatic, but... It does, the less sight you've got, you appreciate just what you've got left, you know? But if I, if, if I'm not looking at something bright, it's like someone's just put a sheet over your head and you're just seeing this grey light through the sheet. You don't see blackness, I'm seeing a kind of greyness. If I wake up during the night, I see that same greyness. One of the last things that I was able to see was the redness of a glass of wine. I would hold the glass of wine up to the sunshine and I would see the, the sunlight coming through and I would see that, that ruby red light through the glass of wine. Peter's condition stems from a problem with the photoreceptors that sit in the back of our eyes. But how do they work? Our producer Eva explains. As we've learned throughout this series, we sense the world around us through receptors. Whether it's touch receptors on our fingertips or taste receptors on our tongues, these molecules essentially convert a stimulus, like sound waves for hearing or chemicals for smell, into an electrical impulse that our nervous system and brains can understand. The same is true of the photoreceptors in our eyes. The rod cells, which work well in low light and contribute to our peripheral vision, and the cone cells, which give us colour vision and work best in quite bright light. Light particles called photons enter the eye through the pupil and end up being detected by different pigment molecules in the photoreceptor neurons. This makes them electrically active through a process called phototransduction and it's this process that's the first step in being able to see. Well, the eye really have, you can think of, two important parts. That's Professor Botond Ruska. He's a researcher and medical doctor at the University of Basel and Institute of Molecular and Clinical Ophthalmology Basel in Switzerland. He both studies vision itself and uses that knowledge to design new therapies to restore vision. One is optics. It's just a lens. And the lens projects an image onto the back of the eye and there is a very amusing structure. It's a computer called the retina. 
So important to understand that the retina is not just a light sensor, but it's a computer that does all sorts of very interesting things before it sends information to the brain. I think all of you know about Photoshop. In Photoshop, you take a picture and something else comes out. And what the retina is doing is doing a lot of Photoshop operations simultaneously. So it looks at your face and what comes out is all sorts of versions of your face. Some with only the edges, some tells about motion, another tells about color, as if there would be 30 video cameras, each recording something different about the face, which then goes in the optic nerve to the brain. And the brain is then looking at these 30 videos and trying to make sense of the world. So the brain does not see the world. The brain sees these 30 videos and try to guess what is out there. So we go down the optic nerve. Do we have an area of the brain that's, that's committed to sight? Absolutely. And there are actually several areas that look at the retina, but one for us humans are very important, which is right in the middle. It's called the thalamus. It's like a relay station, but it's not just relaying information. There is all sorts of computations ongoing, which we don't fully understand. But at the end, information arrives to the back of our head. And here is what we call the visual cortex. And then from here, it radiates to most of the cortex, Humans are extraordinarily visual, such as half of the cortex, we can measure visual information. So that's why losing vision is so important, because humans and primates in general became extraordinarily visual-driven. And if we think about the development of, of sight, can babies see in the womb? At what point does the sight develop? So the retina is really a tissue which is fundamentally part of the brain. We are born already with an existing retina not a fully developed retina. So the retina still develops after birth, but let's say a three, four months old baby has a relatively good vision. This is when the, an area of the retina called fovea develops. The retina of humans is very large. The fovea, which is the center of the retina, is only 0.2% of area. Yet, if you lose foveal vision, you think you are blind. If you lose all the rest, you think, I'm still okay. And the reason for that, that the human retina, in general, primate retinas are built, but only of primates among mammals, is that we put a high-resolution camera at the very center of this. It has an incredible high resolution compared to the rest of it. And because we are seeking high resolution as humans, we are seeking faces and we want to read, right? This is our main activities. Therefore, the fovea is what we call vision, although there's a lot else is happening. For example, there's a motion in the periphery, we orient the fovea to see what is there, but basically we see with our fovea. So if you have a problem with a fovea called macular degeneration, people believe they are blind. They are not blind. Only small part of the retina is not functioning. But for us humans, this is the most important part. And Botond himself is extremely familiar with doing experiments to try and understand how we see. This whole area is about understanding vision above the retina. So if you look at this little device, there are 60,000 electrodes on it. And now you record with electrodes. So these are very complex microscopies. So if I turn on, it's basically a 360 yeah. TV in, in which the mouse sits in the middle. Here you can show a hologram on the retina so you can very precisely control where the photons are. We can record from the mouse brain while it's behaving and watching certain movies around it. And 
all of this work is in an effort to help find treatments for people like Peter. Currently, there are no treatments for retinitis pigmentosa, although vitamin A may slow the loss of vision in some forms of the disease. Peter underwent an experimental treatment in Moscow every summer from the ages of 15 to 30. And although it's not clear that it actually helped his sight, it did help in other ways. Because everyone that was receiving treatment was like me, we'd all open up with each other, we'd all discuss our, our problems. So it was actually, as well as receiving the eye treatment, the actual process of being able to talk to other people that were like myself, it was so therapeutic, it was so... I, I felt, for probably the first time in my young life, I actually felt like everybody else, although everyone else was like was like me, we were all, all in, in the same boat, as it were. So, what about some of the most common visual problems, like being long or short-sighted? If you're long-sighted, it means you can see far away things clearly, but struggle close up. It happens when light ends up focused behind instead of on the retina. It can get worse as we age, as the lenses of the eye start to stiffen as we get older. Ultimately, though, Botond explained that being long-sighted falls under just normal variation in eyesight, just like normal variation in height, for example. Whereas short-sightedness, also called myopia, where you struggle to see things that are far away... It goes beyond normal variation. And the way we know that in the last 50 years or 60 years, short-sightedness tripled or doubled uh, in Europe. And in Asia, it went from 20% to 90% in, in kids. So we are living in what we call a myopia epidemic. And why short-sightedness is a problem? Because, you know, I, I have my glasses, I'm short-sighted, I take the glasses and I'm all okay. The problem is not that we cannot correct the optics. When short-sightedness, the eye grows. And when it grows to a certain size, it will cause macular degeneration, glaucoma, and uh, retinal detachment. It's just because there is a pull on the retina. And by 2050, around 5 billion people on the world will be myopic. That is two-thirds of the, of the world. And if people have larger than 6 dioptrii, half of them will have visual impairment. So we are looking at incredible large problem, mostly in Asia for right now, but already in Europe and the US, we have also a problem. This is one of the major area we are working on and other institutes are working on. Okay, so do you have an idea what might be causing this sudden increase? We know some correlations. There was a very large test uh, showing that if kids spend more time outside, they are less myopic. This is probably the most fundamental finding. But what is exactly is causing is unknown. Is it light intensity? Is it the spectrum of the light outside? Is it because we are moving more? Is it because we are optic is watching further? We don't know. Right. So it could be that the eye is getting more exercise outside. Maybe. Anything is possible. We don't know. My bet would not be on that, okay. but, but we don't know right now. This is one thing to find the cows, but the second is how to intervene. And this is, I think, the key goal now, to find some molecules that can interfere with this abnormal growth. Yeah, because I mean, I know from my own experience, I, my retina detached because I'm very short-sighted. So I'm, I'm minus 11 exactly. in both eyes. And I know how... First of all, terrifying it was to go blind, but also how yeah. 
important it was to be treated quickly. And I was lucky because I was. I mean, it sounds like there could be a, a whole sort of tidal wave of blindness, ultimately. What you describe is exactly one of the consequences of myopia. We say retinal detachment. But this can be treated quite well if you're lucky, if you're in a big city, uh, you are in a, a developed uh, country. The other is macular degeneration, which comes late in age, like 80 years old or something, we can postpone it using some drugs, but we cannot treat it today. So I think the best is to try to prevent the development of myopia in any way we can. I mean, that prevention, I, I assume, would have to occur in childhood. It has to occur in childhood because this is when it develops. So this is what the whole field is looking at. So is there a genetic component to who is more likely to be, for example, myopic, or who is more likely to get glaucoma or macular degeneration? As with almost all human conditions, there are two components. There is a genetic component and there is an environmental component. In case of myopia, most uh, of the problem comes from non-genetic reasons. You know this because 60 years ago, there were much less myopic. So our genetics is not changing in, in 60 years. Nevertheless, there are families where we know the genes, and these are giving us some hints, at least, about the fundamental mechanism of eye growth or what can go wrong with eye growth. So monogenic condition, I think, in the case of myopia, are a very small percentage. But for researchers, they are important because we can learn from the process. After my retinal detachment, I was left with about 70% of the vision in my right eye. I've essentially lost some of my peripheral vision. I don't normally notice it because my wonderful brain has compensated by merging the two images from my left and right eye together. But it does affect me if it's low light. And when it comes to genetic causes of blindness, Batond explained that most people aren't born blind, but develop worsened eyesight over time. This was the case for Peter, although, as he has what's considered the most extreme form of retinitis pigmentosa, even as a child his eyesight wasn't very good. Peter made it to college to study business and ultimately took a job at an aluminium company, but the lack of proper help and support made it extremely challenging. By the time he was 28, he was registered as legally blind and working in his dad's local chip shop. My wife knew I was kind of struggling and she said, you know, you're going to have to do something different. You're not going to be able to work in that shop for, for much longer. I went, I know. She says, well, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. And what she did was she dialed the number for the Open University and she handed me the receiver. I said, hey, no, no, no. She, I, I can't, I, you know, I, I won't have the time. I'll, I'll struggle. And she went, well, you can either put the receiver down or you can ask for a prospectus. So I asked for a prospectus. And the prospectus came through the door, and I'm looking at all these courses. I'm thinking, oh, that this would be great. I could do that. I could do this. And he did. He studied social sciences and economics with the help of a cassette tape listening on two times speed and screen reading software. For the first time, I actually felt it was really nice to absorb this knowledge to... I mean, I actually enjoyed studying for the first time in my life, you know, and achieving reasonably good grades. So before, you know, before I was just happy to scrape a pass. And, you know, as the grades came in and I was like, well, I'm actually, I'm actually okay at this, you know. So it was, it was great. Peter made it through teacher training college and ultimately beat the odds to become an economics teacher, spending hours at home with his wife learning how to draw complex diagrams with the very limited vision he had left. I almost felt that I was being assessed 
for blind people. So if I failed, this would not look good for the blind community. So, you know, I almost felt this personal responsibility to, you know, I'm going to, you know, do my best here and hopefully, you know, they'll see that a blind person can become a teacher and because of that, they'll employ more blind teachers. So anyway, I was teaching in the job for probably about nine or ten years, but my eyes actually were deteriorating at that time as well. So even although I couldn't do any more close work with the, the whiteboard, and I really felt, you know, I am disadvantaging my students. And as soon as I felt that I was disadvantaging my students, I basically handed my notice in to the headmistress and um, gave up a job that I absolutely loved. I can only talk for myself, but I feel that if I'm not able to put 110% into that, I'm not able to get the outcome, i.e. teach that subject to my students, and not just to the brightest student that would perhaps still pick it up, but to all students at all levels, then it's time to, it was time to call it a day, and I felt that that's, that's the stage I was at. So that's what happened. So eventually I had to give up that, that lovely job that I had. Peter went on to study for a master's and even did some tutoring back at the Open University. But eventually, the marking became too much and he had to finally give up work. But not everyone with retinitis pigmentosa becomes fully blind. It comes in various forms and altogether is responsible for about 10% of sight loss. And so it's one of the key disorders Botond is focused on. For retinitis pigmentosa, this condition, there are around 70 different genes in which mutation leads to the same disease group. And the essence of this condition is that rod photoreceptors, which are for night vision, they die, and cone photoreceptors lose their function. In some cases die, in some cases not. And so there is a whole computing retina, but there's no light sensitivity. So we took a gene from algae called Crimson R, and this is what we put back into patients. The technique he's describing is called optogenetics. This Crimson R gene makes a protein that responds to light, and that functions essentially as a mini photoreceptor. There are actually lots of proteins in nature that can do this, and the first ones that scientists considered came from water plants, which not everyone was originally on board with. So the idea of optogenic therapy born in my mind when I was a finishing graduate student in 2002, and everybody laughed on me. So I remember the first conference we presented it. We had a poster and people came there, you, you're not serious that you put some gene from algae into humans. You lost your mind. But the first clinical trial was 2019. And we pioneered a therapy called optogenetic therapy for blindness, in conditions when the photoreceptors, they don't function anymore. And gene therapy is really something that is very simple to understand. There is a little ball, which is called adeno-associated viral vector. It's a long name for a little ball. And inside the little ball, there is a single chain of a DNA that is encoding something. And this DNA has really two parts. One is what we call the cargo. This is what you want to bring in. It can be many things a light-sensitive gene, a gene editor, another gene. This is what we call a cargo. Then also there's a little postal address. And this postal address is a funny one because we put billions of this little ball in the eye and they all go to, into cells. But this little postal address tell a cell, make the cargo or don't make the cargo. 
express the gene or don't express the gene. It's a little switch. This we call a promoter. And the reason we need that is that I told you that the retina is a computer with 100 different cell types. And I want the therapy, only one of them. So I have to tell, okay, you can enter all cells, but I want you only make that in the photoreceptors, for okay. example. Yeah. And we're using genes from different organisms. For example, we have currently a therapy in Paris and in the U.S. in clinical trial where we're using a gene from algae. And that light sensor creates a little current in the cell. So the cell becomes light sensitive. And that's one of our gene therapies currently ongoing. These are the first gene therapies in human reported together with Jose Sahel a year ago. And we see how much these patients can achieve, what are the limitations and how, what's the next step. The crimson R protein botond used responds to amber light. And the patient was able to locate, touch and count objects placed on a white table in front of him while wearing special goggles that projected amber images onto his retina. It sounds miraculous, but it's been a long road to get here and there's still lots of work to be done. In fact, getting the right genes in the right places has been the first challenge. And it's what Professor Bernard Schneider works on. He's the head of the gene therapy facility at Campus Biotech in Geneva, Switzerland. So a vector is designed to transfer genetic information from the outside of the cells to the nucleus, which means that it has to cross two barriers. The first barrier is the cell membrane. The second barrier is the nuclear membrane. And today, the most used vectors are derived from viruses. But I don't like to talk about viruses because the reason is that the viruses can replicate itself. And this is why a virus is causing a disease. In the case of a vector, you take the, the mechanisms that the viruses has evolved to transfer this genetic information across those barriers. And now you make this vector not able to replicate itself, but you use this capacity to integrate the genetic information into the cell. So if you want, we take the best out of the virus to make it a useful vector that can be used for a treatment. Right, so you're exploiting the virus's ability to cross those membranes, which is what it wants to do so it can infect you, but you've taken out the bit that says, right, now I'm going to replicate and, and make you incredibly poorly. Exactly. And then how does it work? Does it splice itself into your DNA or how do we then get that piece of DNA to activate and do some good? There are different uh, modalities, I would say, in the context of the brain or in the context of the eye, for instance, you're dealing with cells which do not divide. So the cells will be almost have a lifespan which is as long as the, the whole organism. So this is especially the case for long projection neurons or some retinal cells, etc. In this case, since the cells does not divide, you can just put a piece of DNA inside the nucleus and it will stay there for the entire lifespan of the cell. If now the cells is dividing, you want the DNA to integrate into the whole cell genetic information. So I would say de depending on what tissue you target, you may want to integrate or you may prefer the option to keep the DNA as a small chromosome that will just reside for a long time inside the cell nucleus. And the adeno-associated vectors, which are now very much used for brain or eye or ear applications, 
they basically do not mostly integrate in the host genome. They just remain there. They deliver the, the piece of information, of genetic information, which remains like a little chromosome inside the nucleus. But this chromosome is active, and it will do what it is meant to do, which is express elements which will provide the therapeutic efficacy. Gene therapy is already in use to treat conditions beyond the eye, though. There are already treatments today which have had very significant impact on disease. And, and I think that the best example in, in my field, in the field of neurology, is uh, the use of uh, a valve vector, an adeno-associated valve vector, very close to the vector we, we have been using in the eye for the treatment of spinal muscular atrophy. So this is a deadly disease where, where babies won't survive beyond two years of age when it, in its most severe form. And now there, there is, uh, I think, more than 2,000 babies who have been treated by gene therapy, and these babies are doing really well. So this has been really a game-changer in the field. And that's when you see that the technology you're developing and what you see in your animal models or in your cells can really translate into something which is real. And there is already a gene therapy treatment that can prevent deterioration of eyesight in some cases of retinal pigmentosa. The first example for blindness has been this gene therapy for the treatment of RP65 deficiency. So this is a, an example where you have an enzymatic deficiency, so it's this enzyme called RP65, which is important for the functioning of the photoreceptors, but which is actually expressed in the retinal epithelial cells. So there the, the gene is defective, and it was an example where you introduced just a functional gene into the right cells, and therefore you can prevent further development of the disease, and you can actually functionally rescue your, your eye and restore vision. So this was the first example that led to, to a marketed product today, which is called Luxturna. The type of treatment that would help people like Peter, however, is still in development though he has thought about what it would be like if he were able to get some sight back. I'd be seeing these people for, the, for my grandchildren the first time ever. My own children, I'd be seeing them for the first time since, since they, were, they were children. You know, so how, how, would, how would that affect me? It, that in itself, I think, would be an interesting piece of research, you know. But especially my wife myself, all my contemporaries, we're, we're in our 50s and 60s now. I know it, it sounds funny, but if I was to look in a mirror and I see this old guy, I mean, in my head, I'm still 30. I, 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 I think it would be weird. Having said that, if it was offered to me, would I take it? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely take it. With that in mind, Botond is full steam ahead with other research projects to understand more about the eye and test future treatments. And he uses lots of different systems in his research. First up, organoids, which are like mini human retinas grown in dishes. This is what an organoid looks like. That's exactly, and this is the retina here. So we yes. have an experiment right now with 20,000 organoids. Wow. So, so this and is how right big are the organoids? I mean, in terms of... Uh, maybe a few millimetre diameter, maybe right. five millimetre diameter. A lot of the gene therapy development is happening in organoids. Yes. Yeah. At the first phase. Yeah. This is very perfect, isn't it? Because, because actually, it's human. Because it's human, you don't yeah. have to translate it from that's another right. animal. The human, this is what's so important. Just yes. That be in the right cell type of a human. Yeah. 
The next level is using real human retinas that have been generously donated by individuals after they have passed away. We headed into a seemingly empty lab to take a look. These people are sleeping because they have been during the whole night. So you basically get, I mean, so you <laughs> so get the retina fresh, as it were, right. from... So from this is a multi-organ donor. Yes. And the multi-organ donor, we get the uh, retina if the donor decides yeah. uh, so. And then the retina is huge, we cut into pieces. And some people study here the fovea part and some culture. But this comes when the donation comes. So we do some acute recordings here. There is this new technology developed by Arnold Sabo in Budapest. We can keep it alive for like 14 weeks. So this is, the retinas are now alive in an incubator. And now we do gene therapy on them that we will read out. Yeah. And the ultimate goal is to keep whole human eyes alive for experimentation. Quick question. We, we have a podcast here. Uh, and I just wonder if you have some eyes. Yes. Ah, super, oh, you got lucky. So Akash is an ophthalmologist who came here to develop a new procedure to keep whole eyes alive. So what you see here is actually a pig eye that he's oh, able okay. now to, to keep alive for several days and developing uh, with other collaborators a number of surgical procedures. So how do you do a surgery in an eye? Yeah. Uh, and gene therapy, for example. And now we have a, a model where you can test it. So what we've got here, we seem to have, so we've got a very obvious eye in a glass box, and it's being dripped with something. Is that some now sort of saline solution? things you see, or? that your eye has one artery coming from the optic nerve. Yeah. You see here that there's a cannula. Yes. If you look, is that the cannula comes in into that artery, the central artery. Yeah. And then we are dripping from the top that the eye is not getting dry. I see. Yeah. Okay. So now we try to keep her for several days and then we see how long we can keep her alive yeah. and how the condition is changing and what we have to do to keep even longer alive. Yes. Yeah. So Akos had hu human eye donation was yesterday, right? Or yes. How did it go? Very well. Very well. Super. Yeah, very good. Thank you. And for Peter, the success of all this research would mean the world. When I was younger, I mean, I tried to be the, the sighted person and tried to be absolutely, in quotes, normal. And I, it was silly, it was futile. And I look back on it and I'm thinking, why did I struggle for so long? You know, instead of just asking for help, instead of explaining my situation to people. And generally, I would say I'm in a good place, but sometimes it comes back. And it must be like a bereavement, you get over it but you never get over it completely. And there are times when it can just overwhelm you. For Sometimes there might be a reason for it. Sometimes there might not be a reason for it. I do think, you know, wouldn't it be great to be able to see the face of my, my wee grandchildren? Wouldn't it be, be great to just, just do something without having to think and go through all these stages? And But I'm thinking, wouldn't it be great if instead of going to the hospital and you're told that you're going to go blind. Wouldn't it be absolutely wonderful if they said, but don't worry, we've got this new gene therapy and we might be able to help you. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that would give you just some hope, you know? Thank you so much to Peter, Botond Roska and Bernard Schneider for talking to me for this episode. And thanks also to the Royal National Institute of the Blind for their support. We're back in a few weeks to explore the neuroscience of ageing. In the meantime, join us in two weeks for another one of our focus episodes, where Eva's exploring the science of super recognisers. I'm Anna Machen, and this 
is How We're Wired. How We're Wired is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. It's produced by Eva Higginbotham. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode. <laughs>